And my pitch to them was very similar to the pitch I made at Walt Disney World. These kids are the most important thing in any community and that we need to do everything we all can to ensure that, you know, my kids will have the best opportunities and that your kids, whether you're a gangbanger or not, your little brothers and sisters, your sons and daughters should all have the best facilities, become the best physical specimens that they can to be the smartest that they can to have the most opportunities as they continue to grow of anyone. And they let me out alive. Welcome to the Attraction Pros Podcast, where we discuss the latest trends and challenges facing the attractions industry today. We chat with some of the top leaders in the field and provide resources that will help develop your career in this great industry. I am Josh Liebman. I am obsessed with the guest experience and helping attractions make that their top priority for success. And I'm Matt Heller. I am passionate about organizational effectiveness, leadership development, and employee engagement. Now sit upright, hold on tight, and get ready for the Attraction Pros Podcast. Keep connecting with IAPA in 2024. Join your colleagues and peers at the IAPA FEC Summit from January 21st to the 23rd in San Antonio, Texas. Or plan to celebrate the industry's most significant achievements at the new IAPA Honors Event held in conjunction with the IAPA North America Summit, March 3rd through the 5th in Las Vegas. We can't wait to see you there. Visit IAPA.org. That's I-A-A-P-A.org for more information. Hey, Matt, how's it going? It's going fantastically, Josh. How are you? Matt, it's going really well. And I've got to say, it is just so great to hear that you're doing fantastic. Well, thank you. Question. Yes. Uh, I think I know the answer here, but uh, you've, you've played sports before, right? I have. Tell us tell us about your, your sports background. <laughs> okay. Well, I played football starting, I think, in like fourth or fifth grade, all the way through my sophomore year in high school. Uh, I played baseball and a little bit of soccer. Nice. I think as, as far as organized sports, like actually on a team, yeah. um, those are those are my experiences. Cool. Cool. And how about you? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Usually you're like, what about you? <laughs> uh, yeah, I played, I played uh, tennis and I played basketball and I skied. Um, I, I was a, a downhill snow, snow ski on the racing team in high school, uh, my sophomore, junior, senior year. So that was, that was the sport I played the most, uh, which is interesting because it's, it's a team sport that you do individually, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. interesting. Well, speaking of teams, um, there's teams in sports, there's teams in business. Is there a parallel in there somewhere? You know, it's funny you ask that because I was going to ask you that same question as a follow-up to your sports background and your uh, your history in sports. And you know what? I think there is because when we talk about the groups of people that we work with, we oftentimes refer to them as the team. And the team has to rally together and the team has to win. But it's, it's a very different context in the way 
that that works. We got to ask that question to someone who has a lot of experience in teams in sports and on teams in business, and that is Reggie Williams. He is formerly the vice president of Disney Sports Attractions, uh, who under his leadership and direction developed what we now know today as the ESPN wide world of sports and the Walt Disney World complex. Prior to that, though, he spent 14 seasons with the Cincinnati Bengals. So I think I think this is a first for us on Attraction Pros, where we get to interview a professional football player. I think it is. I think it is. And and quite frankly, I got to nerd out a little bit as he was telling some of his his football stories and some of the names that he was dropping. Um, but you know what's what's fascinating is you talk about somebody who's been at you know on teams in both of these contexts, but at a very, very high level. Like it doesn't get much higher of a level than you know Disney from a corporate standpoint and the NFL from a football standpoint. So, you know, it's really fascinating to hear how he talks about the parallels of the teams, how they work together, and so many of the leadership lessons that he took from his very early days as someone who was thrust into a leadership position that he still carries with him today and still are very, very applicable here in 2023. Yeah, uh, and applicable, we can transfer it to what we do in the attractions industry. When he was telling us, like you said, how he was thrust into leadership, he uh, had to oversee the the calisthenics for the team. He was the captain of the team. Uh, the, the idea of being thrust into leadership reminded me of actually something that you talk about a lot, which is when you know a frontline team member is doing a really good job and there's a leadership an opportunity that's available and they're given the keys in the radio and, and they're told to go and uh, you know, he he experienced that on, on a very different level, on, on a very different scale uh, and, and in a bit of a different capacity in sports. But everything that he talks about from a, a sports standpoint and from a football standpoint, we can translate directly into what we do in the attractions business. Absolutely. And one of the things that was so fascinating that I didn't know about was that he was born with a with a hearing deficiency. And so he went to the Michigan School for the Deaf and, you know, learned over the years how to communicate and how to listen. And it was so great to hear him talk about how listening is a skill and listening is something that is so, so important. And he talks about even listening for the pain that other people are going through so that you can help them as a teammate, you can help them as a leader, you can help them as, as a manager, as a director, whatever your title is, as a human being, you can listen to that person and really have a profound effect on their life. And we we won't get too much into what he did with that because we want to make sure that that uh, you hear it from him himself. Yeah. But the things that he was able to do for people, for, for the people that were on his team at Disney, whether they were other senior levels within the organization or that frontline cast member, uh, it was just so inspirational. And, and like you said, ties it back to the way that he was able to listen and really empathize. And this is just a, a just such a, a great interview where we learn lessons about leadership. We learn lessons about 
about sports. We learned lessons about about bringing teams together. Uh, And we also really got to hear just the fascinating story of how the wide world of sports came to be and how the whole recreations uh, capacity of Disney came to be and talked about his introduction with with Michael Eisner and talked about how the the organization had just bought the Mighty Ducks and talked about how how not everyone really agreed with, uh, with the idea of there being a sports complex on site at Walt Disney World. And now today, not only is it thriving, but also very much saved the sports industry in 2020. So if you recall the the NBA bubble, that couldn't have happened if it weren't for what Reggie Williams did at Walt Disney World and uh, just bringing the sports and recreation uh, division of the business to life. So is it time to throw Reggie the ball and uh, get on with this interview? Let's do it, Ike. Hey, Reggie, welcome to the Attraction Pros Podcast. We are so excited to have the opportunity to talk to you today. How are you? I'm doing great, Josh. Nice to meet you, Matt. I'm looking forward to our conversation about all of the great things that occur in the uh, attractions industry. Obviously, my focus will be sports. Yes. Awesome. Can't wait to get into it. We've been uh, really looking forward to doing this interview. So uh, to kick this off here, um, I guess no pun intended, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, about your background and your career. Yeah, I think that's important for everyone to know that uh, I'm from Flint, Michigan. And so I know Flint has uh, endured a lot of controversy, especially because of the water crisis. Um, you know, the whole um growth of the area has been significantly diminished by all that. But in my childhood, one of the great things about Flint, Michigan, was that it was also home for the Michigan School for the Deaf. And that was because I was born hearing impaired. And if you don't hear sounds, it's impossible for you to repeat those sounds. So I developed a speech impediment as a kid. And so that was one of the things that was a big part of my childhood um, was it pointed to a certain difference in me, not just my color, which was an important issue, you know, in the 50s and the 60s when I grew up. But the fact that just to look at someone, you really can't tell that they have a disability. And so that's one of the things that really, really was a challenge for me uh, that I had to overcome. Because ultimately, um, I did everything my parents requested of me to, you know, apply myself to every academic opportunity. I was focused on going to the University of Michigan. I was planning on being a doctor. And uh, Bo Schimbeckler, the Hall of Fame head coach of the University of Michigan, came to my high school. And in front of my high school coach, he told me if I Come to the University of Michigan, do him a favor, and don't come out for the football team. Just totally shattered my dreams to my face. I went home and told my father, and my father said, don't worry about Bo. I'll get an extra job so that I can pay your tuition to go to Dartmouth College. The Ivy League does not allow, does not have any kind of scholarship. And so it's going to cost my parents uh, a lot more. But I then had a chip on my shoulder heavier than me. And uh, when I went to Dartmouth, uh, the freshman head coach, Jerry Burnt, 
um, basically had overheard some other players who were complaining about the black teammates that they now had on their team, having come from all white programs in high school. And there were a couple players that wanted to change their locker away from me so that they wouldn't have to shower in the same place. And, you know, this is, you know, real racism in 1973. And so what my head coach did, which is one of the most phenomenal leadership, you know, um, decisions uh, in my lifetime, on that very first day, without ever seeing me do anything, he made me the captain of the team. Called me up to lead calisthenics, which I had never done before. I had no idea what we were going to do. I was making it up on the fly. But all of a sudden, I was thrust into this leadership role in front of hundreds of other aspiring football players. And the goal was to live up to that challenge. And throughout my Dartmouth career, I was able to do that, having the opportunity to also be captain of the varsity team, and becoming the last All-American, not just at Dartmouth, but the last All-American from the Ivy League. And I was drafted by the Cincinnati Bengals in the third round. Um, always, Everyone sort of felt the reason Cincinnati drafted me, because they're the only NFL team that has Dartmouth ownership. Mike Brown is a Dartmouth grad who owns the team. Uh, his daughter, Katie, is a Dartmouth grad. And her daughter is a Dartmouth grad. And uh, the biggest game of my 14-year uh, NFL career was really the first game, the first game that I came off the bench. And it's my third game in the NFL. I'm a bench warmer. Uh, the starter got hurt on the Saturday practice. He couldn't go. The team still wasn't confident in my abilities that they moved a, a player from inside linebacker to outside linebacker. And I sat the bench still. It was only until the second quarter when it was obvious that he wasn't working out that they put me in out of desperation. And from that game, from that performance, I started the next 14 years of my NFL career, including being the starters for Super Bowl 16 and Super Bowl 23. Uh, the probably most unique aspect of my NFL career is that when I played in Super Bowl 23, I was also simultaneously a Cincinnati City Council member, something that no other pro athlete in any sport has ever done simultaneously. And we came within seconds of getting our Super Bowl ring. And after that, I was hired by the NFL to um, – uh, conceive NFL Youth Education Town. I'm going to talk a little bit about that later. And from that position, I was hired by Disney to start a whole new business, which was the sports business. And that resulted in the number one youth sports complex in the world, which is now called ESPN Wide World of Sports. And the back of my, uh, the, the rest of my background has just been recovering from all of the damage that professional football did to my body. I've had over 20 knee operations, including five knee replacements. 
Uh, unfortunately, on my right knee, I developed osteomyelitis, which is an infection of the bone. And uh, that's one of the toughest infections to get rid of in your body. And this resulted now in me having a right knee that doesn't bend and is three and a half inches shorter than my left leg. So a lot of challenges, but it's all uh, important to maintain a positive, consistent attitude as I continue to deal with all the challenges in life. Wow, Reggie, there's just so much to unpack there. I can't wait to uh, ask some follow-up questions. And the first one is, going back to when you were thrown in front of the team and you were doing the the calisthenics and, and you were now the captain, what are some of those leadership lessons that you learned in that experience that you still carry with you today? I think one of the most important things uh, when when that moment was thrust upon me was was I needed to exhibit the fact that I belonged in that role and that this was something that I myself was very confident in my abilities and therefore uh, I needed to exude that kind of confidence so that everyone else on the team would see this was no aberration. This is the guy that we better, you know, follow. And the one thing on top of that uh, with leadership is that everyone's watching you and they watch the little things and the little lessons are important. You know, how, you know, you uh, conduct yourself with referees, for instance, you know, I mean, one of the things that I really feel is that unsportsmanlike, unsportsmanlike conduct penalties are really always the result of a lack of character of the football player. I mean, if you know the rules and, you know, you apply yourself, you know, athletically and physically to the rules, then, you know, your character should allow you to do your job in such a way that you will never get an unsportsmanlike conduct penalty. In my 14-year career, I only got one. I got one sportsmanlike conduct penalty and this was on a play in the last uh, seconds of the game. Uh, we needed a turnover, and I hit this ball carrier and uh, in such a way to force the, the turnover. I recovered the ball. I've done exactly what my team, what the city, what all our fans needed me to do. And yet the referee said that I didn't cause a fumble. And that as I got up to argue that, because this was before there was instant replay or slow-mo or anything like that, uh, he threw a flag on me. And I was so distraught that because of my penalty, they got an extra 15 yards, was able to kick a field goal, and I thought that I was the reason we lost the game. But the very next day on the cover of the Cincinnati Enquirer was a picture of me hitting the guy and the ball popping out before he hit the ground. So, you know, I got a bad call, but I still, you know, should not have erupted in the kind of anger that resulted in an unsportsmanlike conduct penalty. Thank you for sharing that story. And, and you know, as you're telling that, I, I'm thinking about some of the the parallels between sports and business. And unsportsmanlike, sometimes maybe there's 
there's a, a team member, you know, a, a coworker who perhaps is uh, who is who is not behaving <laughs> properly or anything like that. And, and one of the questions that we had for you was was actually about those parallels between business and sports because you have so much experience on both of those. <laughs> and when we think of sports teams, we think about you know a, a group of people who are rallying together and there's an opponent and they all want to go and they win. And then in business, we call we call groups of people teams as well, and yeah. it's usually a little more operational, or maybe it's it's administrative. <laughs> There's still goals uh, to achieve, but I'm curious if uh, uh, kind of the the parallels or the the similarities between the two. <laughs> well, there are definitely parallels between the two. I mean, uh, teams and sports compete against each other. Teams in business compete against other businesses. You compete against the brand. You uh, compete uh, against the revenue that your business is generating. You compete on the profit and loss side of the business. But the one thing that I think that's very important is the similarities in, in, in uh, football to business is how do you get better? What do you study? So in, in sports, you study film. You anticipate what the next play will be. You understand the talents of your opponents. You understand the different uh, injuries that, uh, that may occur during uh, the game or preparation for the game. Same thing in business. You know, you can learn so much by, you know, business analysis, by, you know, uh, Hiring talent from your competition, which is, you know, one of the, you know, one of the quiet ways that, you know, businesses compete against other businesses. But the thing that, you know, you do have is the ability to continue to improve. That's the one important thing. I think about some of the great businesses that didn't evolve. Businesses like Kodak, okay, which really owned the film industry at one time here in America and around the world. And where do they exist now? Hardly anywhere. Obviously because, you know, they didn't anticipate the proliferation of digital cameras. And, you know, and they weren't savvy enough to change their business model, you know, to be able to compete and evolve into other industries. The same thing is in sports. I mean, you study your opponent, you've got to evolve during a season and through the lifespan of, of your career so that you can continue to improve. In my career, early on, there were certain athletic talents that I had that I could rely upon. I was fast, and it was the fastest part of my career. Um, and I was very athletic. I could, you know... Um, Elevate, which was one of the things that was unique for my ability. But as I started to age, my speed lessened and my ability to jump lessened, but my strength improved, my size improved, my wisdom about knowing what my job was improved, my ability to study my opponent improved, my... Uh, uh, understanding of the coaching philosophy, the overall thing. It wasn't just how I as an individual fit into it, but how can I be a part of making the whole machine 
better. And so all of those things, you know, come to play as we compare teams in sports and teams in business. That is so fascinating. And I'm reminded about a friend who used to work for Sears. And he said that Sears had all the infrastructure set up to become Amazon if they wanted to. But just like you mentioned, they didn't make the pivot. They didn't make the change to digital. They had the catalog. They had all the the um, uh, the pieces in place, but they just didn't see the see the future. So that's really really fascinating. Um, I'm curious also if you can take us back to when you started working for Disney and started kind of creating the the sports complex and what that was like, and maybe even how the the attractions industry was starting to embrace sports as an attraction yeah there's there's like a a two segment answer to your (laughs) question um how i ended up at disney okay i was uh working for the nfl as the director of community relations for super bowl 27 that was a game between the dallas cowboys and the buffalo bills obviously Dallas won, okay? But before the the game, the game was in Pasadena. I was hired for that position because I was a city councilman, and I was aware of the community impact. And that was the year of the Rodney King riots. And so the NFL needed to demonstrate that they really cared about the community, and they weren't just a, a bunch of fat cats flying in on their private planes, getting into a limo, taking up all of the best real estate, the best parks, the best buildings, playing this uh, game where players are making millions of dollars, then go home and not care about the citizens that live there. And so what I came up with NFL Youth Education Time, which was a a, uh, facility that – gave recreational assistance and academic assistance to the most at-risk kids in the most at-risk neighborhoods in a community. And so for us, we put the first NFL yet in the, on the same corner that the Rodney King riots started. And uh, I was able to go to Disney to solicit sponsorship because one of my Dartmouth classmates, Mike Montgomery, was the treasurer of the company. And so he invited me to dinner, I mean to lunch. And as I'm sitting at lunch, over comes Michael Eisner, who had heard of, you know, my career because his two sons went to Dartmouth College as well. And he came over and he said, you know, we just bought the Mighty Ducks. We have all this land at Walt Disney World in Orlando. And we're thinking about the sports business. What would you do? That open-ended. And I came up with what was ultimately ESPN Wide World of Sports, Disney's Wide World of Sports. And a lot of it, you know, emulated, uh, emulated from my personal experiences. It was a combination of playing sports in Flint and a combination of playing sports at Dartmouth College. But the whole idea is there is a center, there's a place that everyone can gravitate to that can, like, it was in the city of uh, Flint that was Atwood Stadium. So all of the major high schools will play, take turns playing at Atwood Stadium. 
and ultimately you would crown the best team in the city based upon having a common meeting location. And so the goal was just to make Walt Disney World that common meeting location for all the kids who played all the sports in whatever state, whatever country, there is now a place where we can meet to compete, do our best to win, do our best to have the most memorable sports experience of our life. And we're always encouraged everyone to win. We want to give them the best facilities. But if for some reason you do lose, you're still at the happiest place on earth. And that was something that I didn't have when I lost Super Bowl 23. There was no happiest place on earth anywhere in my periphery. So that's one of the things that we really wanted to introduce to the kids. Now, one of the challenges uh, uh, of that, especially at Walt Disney World, is uh, the, the superheroes are your characters. And so it's Mickey Mouse and Minnie and Goofy and Pluto, etc. Well, in order to launch the business, just to demonstrate that we were serious about the authenticity of sports, I banned those characters from a Disney property. And that did not cause me to make a lot of friends across property with the other executives. But I was, I was committed. In order to start the business, Mickey, Minnie, and Pluto, et cetera, were not going to be the superstars at our sports complex. The kids were. This was their moment. This was this, their place. This was their effort. This is, you know, they have dreamed about this challenge and this opportunity, and we want them to be the stars of the show. We don't want them to be outshadowed by a make-believe character. And so Wide World of Sports uh, got its beginning, and it uh, all really started from a conversation with Michael Eisner, who as a follow-up said, you know what? I want you to go and visit Walt Disney World, meet our executives, and uh, see if we can make something happen. Reggie, can you, I, I would just love to just keep this story just continuing here. I want to hear what the next steps were as far as, uh, you know, how you were able to uh, <laughs> be able to, to get the other executives across the property on your side, uh, even though there weren't the, the classic Disney characters that people were coming to the property to see, uh, but with this vision that, no, it's the, the kids that are the stars that uh, uh, that have this opportunity to meet, to compete. And like you said, even if you lose, you're still at the happiest place on earth. I love that philosophy. Uh, can, can you share more about I would say, what that process was like of, of getting everyone to, uh, to to buy into it? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that the other executives, you know, really uh, learned quickly uh, was the fact of how committed and focused I was. Now, in getting... Um, NFL Youth Education Town off of the ground um, and opened. One of the things I needed to do was make sure that that business would not get tagged. Now, you know what tagging is, is when a gang will put graffiti on the outside of a building, which basically indicates this is their territory. And when you have a community like uh, Compton, they have two big gangs, you know, the Bloods and the Crips. And if the either gang were to tag that facility with graffiti, 
they're challenging the other gang to come to our territory. And so I told uh, my boss, who was, uh, you know, the head of the Super Bowl, that uh, this was an issue. And he put me in touch with Jim Brown, the legendary Hall of Famer who unfortunately passed away recently. But that time, Jim Brown, amongst all his other things from doing movies, he was head of a gang, you know, uh, intervention group called America I Can. And so Jim Brown said he would set up a meeting between the Bloods and the Crips for me to negotiate a truce so that we could open NFL Youth Education Town. And so Jim Brown came to my hotel, picked me up with a couple of uh, gangbangers, and they blindfolded me and let me know that they were armed and let me know they didn't need to hear me speak anything while they drove me all crisscross around uh, L.A. until I ended up somewhere. I still don't know to this day where I ended up. I'm assuming it was somewhere in Compton. But they took me out of the car, blindfolded, walked me into the house, blindfolded, walked me down the stairs, blindfolded, put me in the middle of a basement, blindfolded, and then unblindfolded me. Now I'm sitting in the middle of at least 40 to 50 gangbangers, all of them looking mean and nasty, all of them armed. And you know that, you know, they're, they're, they hate each other. And as soon as they take the blindfold off, as I'm trying to adjust my eyes to the darkness, I can see everyone's guns. And I said, okay, get talent. But all of the same leadership lessons that came from sports evolved in that moment. I had to show confidence. I had to know that everyone was looking for at me. I had to know that everyone was looking to see what was my weakness. And my pitch to them was very similar to the pitch I made at Walt Disney World. These kids are the most important thing in any community and that we need to do everything we all can to ensure that, you know, my kids will have the best opportunities and that your kids, whether you're a gangbanger or not, your little brothers and sisters, your sons and daughters should all have the best facilities, become the best physical specimens that they can, to be the smartest that they can, to have the most opportunities as they continue to grow of anyone. And they let me out alive. Okay. And so in that respect, you know, if you're willing to go in front of 50 gangbangers, to, you know, you know, talk to them about your project. I'm able to go in front of 50 executives and talk about my project and say with the kind of honesty and, uh, and intensity that gets them to know that I'm serious about this and that, you know, I've thought about this and, you know, my whole focus is similar to theirs. They all love kids. Okay. We just love them for different reasons. I want kids to be, you know, heroes. I want them to realize their dreams. I want them to learn from defeat.
I want them to develop character in adversity. And, you know, Disney executives, you know, they want kids to laugh, want them to have a good time. They want their parents' money, you know what I mean? So in large respects, you know, we're the same, but, you know, we just uh, have different lovers that we're pulling in our love affair with the children that defines all of our futures. Well, I hope that everybody listening now looks at their next board meeting a little differently. (laughs) I can handle this. If Reggie can go through that, I should be able to handle this. Um, But, you know, what what it makes me think of is all of your experiences and all those different leadership lessons that you've you've taken and, and taught over the years that you've had to deal with so many different types of people. And I know we talked before we started recording about diversity and how important it is that we get kind of everybody on the same page. So can you talk a little bit more about how important it is that we, you know, not only have a diverse audience that we're talking to, but how do we bring all those folks together? Uh, That's a great question. You know, um, I'm going to take it to its, to uh, my platform which was Michigan School for the Deaf. The one thing that you learn if you're living with a, uh, a handicap, and at the time it was called Michigan School for the Deaf and Dumb, which had a, you know, additional connotation. You know, dumb in the hearing community is you, you're unable to hear. But dumb in society says that you're dumb, okay? And so, you know, there is that issue. But what I learned as a student and what I, as I, you know, grew and competed in society and with all the opportunities and challenges that lay before me, one of the things about being born hearing impaired that prepared me was if you're hearing impaired, listening is so important. And if you listen to other people's needs, their concerns, their priorities, and they're people who are different from you, different color, different religion, uh, different uh, place of birth, different gender, all of these differences, you know, um, if you listen to uh, what people are saying about what their goals are, what their strategies are, what their role is to you and how can they contribute to the all overall success of the team or business, then it allows you not to bring in to, you know, the relationship, your own biases. When you're working with other people and you're listening to what they're saying and you're responding to what they're saying, but <laughs> listening is a skill set, you know, Just like, you know, there's the power and skill of observation. Listening is a skill set. I mean, listening is part of just like you as an interviewer, you're trying to pull more information out. As a leader, it's important that we pull out the important things for the people who work for us. First is one of the one of the secret tools that I had uh, when I was at Walt Disney World was that uh, I had a Reggie Williams fund from Cincinnati. And it was uh, a, a, uh, a pot of money that uh, I had raised uh, through uh, means while I was playing for the NFL. 
that allowed me to give money to any 501c3, any charitable organization. And so anytime I had any cast member at Walt Disney World that worked at Blizzard Beach or Typhoon Lagoon or any of our golf courses or at uh, Disney's Wide World of Sports, anything associated with our business that was under my umbrella, I would bring that cast member into my office if they had just suffered a death in their family, they had just suffered any kind of tragedy, if they had something that you really wanted to uh, reward them for, but mostly it was about to meet them at their worst moment and to make a donation in the name of what was hurting them, to make them feel better and to know that what was hurting them is going to be remembered in the right way. And it didn't matter, you know, whether this was an hourly cast member or one of my direct reports who, you know, was bonus eligible. It was something that I felt was to have that conversation, to listen to them, to listen to the pain, to listen to the things that they were missing about this other person or circumstance, and to be encouraging and positive and to know that as we move forward, I want them to be a as good or better a cast member moving forward as they were in the past. And this is one of the tools that allowed me to really develop great loyalty uh, amongst my cast members. And that was one of the things that I also uh, had when dealing with my other executives at Walt Disney World. I had the best leadership ratings of any of the vice president at Walt Disney World. So, you know, whatever success they had, my cast members were really, really supportive of our focus and how we were going to bring sports to the world. And uh, so uh, that's one of the things that uh, sort of evolved from going to Michigan School for the Deaf. You know, you learn a lot more empathy. It's not sympathy. You know, I am one with the pain that you are expressing as we try to, you know, prepare for the future. Reggie, I think this uh, ties in nicely with the concept of resilience. And I know that that's a, a topic that you're very passionate about. Uh, when you talk about uh, experience with the Michigan School for the Deaf and you talk about the the number of, of knee surgeries that you've had, uh, would love to hear a uh, uh, your mindset on resilience and uh, please feel free to, to also share a little bit about your book as well. Resilient by nature. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, you know, resilient by nature was written to try to compile all of the, you know, lessons that I have learned over the years through all of the experiences, the unique experiences that, you know, I've had to go through. I mean, there are very few, you know, politicians that were professional athletes. There are some, but there's none that did it simultaneously. And um, there are uh, a lot of people that are coming from, you know, Flint, Michigan, you know, but but far less now than it was when we were, you know, uh, a much, much bigger city. You know, just to give you an example of how much uh, Flint has downsized I went to a high school called Flint Southwestern. They had over a thousand kids. There were five high schools that each graduated every year 
a thousand kids. Right now in Flint, there's only one high school. It's Flint Southwestern. And they will graduate 200 kids this year. I mean, that is a dramatic, you know, differentiation between the city I grew up with and the city that exists right now. And so that's one of the things that, you know, really uh, allows me to look forward to, you know, being on programs with you is that, you know, Flint is still a great place. My mom still lives in the house that I grew up in. And uh, so uh, I, I have very, very positive uh, memories and expectations for the city of Flint. But it's going to be someone else, though, that will be involved in the turnaround. And so hopefully lessons from some of the sons and daughters of the city, some of the successful ones, will be, you know, the, the things that will bring Flint back. And so Flint, you know, that's, that's your home. It's where you grew up with. Your business, should, your workplace should be comparable. And so, you know, the same kind of emotions that you put into, you know, your home, you know, treating your workplace as your home, a place where you're comfortable, a place where you have teammates, family. That's one of the best environments that people would love to work for. And that's one of the appeals of the attractions industry is the fact that we're there to make people happy. And in the, and there's a variety of ways that they can do it. You know, sports just being one of, of several. You know, it's this Halloween season, you know, and, you know, there's going to be a lot of companies that will make a lot of money scaring the mess out of all of us, all of us, okay? But, you know, we do it all in different ways, where it's scaring you or loving you. You know, that's one of the lessons that we can and how, you know, uh, diverse businesses all still focus on the same positive business principles. Reggie, I feel like we've covered a lot of ground in terms of business and leadership. Um, but there's one thing I want to ask you because of your experience. If if someone were standing in front of you right now and said, you know what, I want to pursue a career either in sports or in attractions or, you know, I want to be the best leader I can be. What would your advice be to them? Study. I mean, you know, you in that desire, someone could, should be able to say the why the why part of why they're going to be in the industry, uh, why they want to work for so-and-so, um, and all of those things, because they, there has to be some uh, studying, some exploration, um, you know, uh, and, and some commitment. And so that's what I will be, you know, listening for as we get into those conversations. People ask me all the time, how do I get in the sports business? You know, and, you know, it's one of the things that I'd love to be able to have an, uh, an answer. But, you know, you have to listen. You have to say, well, what are your talents? What do you do best? What can you do better than someone else? Why, why do you need, know that you need to have this talent? Who have you studied that has this talent? And where do you see the future of this industry go so that you can see yourself not just how I fit in now, how do I fit in in the future? And so all of those things would be things that I'd want to listen to this person 
and then try to fill in the blanks in terms of how I may be able to help them. You know, whether I can point them to other people, I can point them to other reading material, I can point them to other um, uh, lessons that I've learned for from different businesses. And so it, it still evolves around the ability to listen and to comprehend and to provide that kind of communication that allows both individuals to profit from the dialogue. So Reggie, we have a, a few minutes left here before uh, we're going to start wrapping up. But one of the things that we are very curious about, uh, you know, the the Disney Sports Complex uh, gained a significance in uh, in the last few years that I anticipate uh, was not part of your initial plan when it was under development, and that of course is uh, the 2020 sports season uh, that you know very much uh, uh, did not live up to what it was expected to prior, you know, going into 2020 and. Uh, games being canceled or games being played without fans. Uh, but the Disney sports complex played uh, such a, a critical role in saving so much of that industry in 2020, as well as bringing revenue to Walt Disney World that otherwise wasn't uh, wasn't being generated uh, by by general attendance. And we're curious as far as just uh, what what was that like for you to be able to uh, to see that happen and, and kind of see uh, just the sports industry really, really just be saved because of it? Well, having the NBA championship hosted at ESPN Wide World of Sports was a culmination of years and years of years of trying to um, differentiate our facility as authentic. Uh, and I did have conversations before with David Stern, the former commissioner of the NBA, about having championship games at Walt Disney World, about having training camp at Walt Disney World. Um, you know, the dream team, the 1996 dream team with Michael Jordan and, and Larry Bird and everyone else, Magic Johnson, they actually uh, trained at uh, Walt Disney World. And so that's when we had the Disney Institute, which at that point in time had the own basketball gym on property. But they were able to see that we were committed about the authenticity of their experience to prepare them to go and compete against the world. And so we had, you know, those authentic uh, associations. The best players in the world have already played at our place and any child can follow in their footsteps. And so that was something, you know, very special. But but certainly, you know, one of the things that I have to congratulate the existing staff at Walt Disney World did a tremendous job because they were able to convert a new facility that was uh, just opening uh, because the cheerleading business is so big at Walt Disney World. Uh, that it hits on all of your key business uh, lovers. You know, it, it's attendance. The kids have to somehow pay some portion of their comp competition fee. They, they spend money on merchandise. Mom and dad and grandpa and brothers and sisters are going to go with them to the facility. They've got to stay somewhere. They're going to stay at our hotels. You know, 
And they're staying in their hotels at a time of year where Disney needs the business. And then they're going to go to our theme parks at a time when Disney needs the business. And there are broadcasts like with cheerleading, you have broadcasts on ESPN, which continues to drive the brand, not only for the sports complex, but the brand for all of the attractions at Walt Disney World. So it was a win, 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 win situation. And ultimately, the Los Angeles Lakers won the championship, which, you know, culminated in that. And, it's you know, and they were at the happiest place on earth. And so that's one of the things that I was very proud of, that that wouldn't have happened, you know, in a vacuum. That all of a sudden, you know, uh, 2020 came about during the pandemic. And, uh, you know, the NBA were trying to figure out how can they save their season and really put on a, a championship series that goes from the first game to the championship game without any interruptions because of the pandemic. It, it takes real teamwork between the NBA and Disney to really flush out all the what ifs. And so that's one of the things that, you know, I really congratulate the uh, the current leadership team at Walt Disney World, but it all still had its uh, origins in the authenticity of playing sports at the happiest place on earth. That is so cool and fascinating and exciting and inspiring to hear all of that. Um, Reggie, I feel like we, again, have, have covered so much ground, uh, but we are running to the, uh, to the end of the, uh, the end zone, if you will, where <laughs> <Good joke. laughs> we're, get, we're getting there. Um, so if people wanted to uh, get a hold of you or find out more about you, where would you send them? You know, one of the things I would really uh, encourage everyone uh, to do is, you know, get on Amazon and get my book. It's uh, Resilient by Nature. Um, it's written in collaboration with Jared Bell, who is a uh, well, well-known USA Today uh, sports columnist. He's also one of the voters for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Uh, and uh, the forward is written by Russell Wilson the current uh, starting quarterback for the uh, Denver Broncos, the controversial starting quarterback, because he he's not playing as well as he played when he won championship Super Bowl in Seattle, but he will. And their team is, is coming back strong thus far. And so um, the reason that Russell agreed to do the forward is because his father, Harry B. Wilson, was one of my best friends and teammates at Walt, I mean, at Disney. I mean, at Dartmouth. I'm sorry. I've run them all together. Harry B. and I played football at uh, Dartmouth for three years, and uh, we were best friends. And uh, I, I had met uh, Russell many times throughout his uh, childhood, and uh, he says some very, very motivating things, you know, as he writes to Ford. Uh, which leads to my book, which hopefully will also uh, have the readers finding some very inspirational things. But I can be found on Facebook under Reggie Williams. I can be found on Instagram under Reginald.Williams. 
Excellent. Uh, we will include a, uh, a link to the book on Amazon in the show notes, as well as to your uh, your social channels as well. Uh, Reggie, uh, we're, we're just so appreciative to be able to have the opportunity to uh, to interview you today. Uh, I personally have so many great memories of seeing many uh, brave spring training games at uh, at the wide world of sports. So uh, so I guess I can say thank you so much for for uh, helping to make that happen and, and for bringing that to life. Uh, and for everyone out there who is watching and listening, just remember, we are all attraction pros. Thanks for listening to the Attraction Pros podcast. Make sure to subscribe so you can tune in when new episodes release. And even better, please leave us a review on iTunes. For more information, visit attractionpros.com.